Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Today, we consider the life of Albert Einstein. We all know certain details about Albert Einstein. He won a Nobel Prize. He came up with the theory of relativity. He had some connection to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and to Princeton, New Jersey. Then there are certain Einstein-related details that are less well-known. He wasn't a particularly inspired student. He had an early flirtation with religiosity. He worked as a patent clerk. In a new biography, Stephen Gimbel, a professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College, takes a fresh look at Einstein's life, at his work, his politics, and his Jewish self-identification. The book is called Einstein, His Space and Times, and Stephen Gimbel is in the studio with us today to talk about it. Stephen Gimbel, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Before we get to talking about Einstein, I wanted to ask you why you wanted to write this biography. You've written about Einstein before. In fact, you had a book, I think, three years ago that came out about him. What were you hoping to do this time around that's different uh, from what you attempted earlier? Well, the first book was really a book about what we call social epistemology, which is the view that knowledge comes out of culture, that if you really want to understand why we believe what we believe, you have to understand the times. And so that book looked not only at Einstein's theory of relativity, but early theories of gravitation from Isaac Newton, from Rene Descartes, from Aristotle, and showed how they all evolved out of their time. In this book, what I really do is look at Einstein himself. It's the story of his life, but really told through a lens that looks at this notion of self-identity, especially with respect to religion. You are yourself a professor of philosophy, but specifically philosophy of science, Uh, but you're not trained as a scientist. So was it intimidating to try to make sense of these gravitational theories of the theory of relativity and then to furthermore explain it to complete scientific know-nothings like me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as an undergrad, I actually studied both physics and philosophy. Uh In graduate school, I went on my my specialization is in uh, philosophy of physics, which required some graduate level studies in physics in order to do the the sort of work I do. So the theory of relativity is, is actually my intellectual home. And then I teach a lot of classes where I explain to, say, first semester freshmen what's happening in the theory of relativity. So the idea of being able to communicate it clearly to non-technicians is it's what I do for a living. So go for it. Give me the Twitter version. Okay. (laughs) So two basic concepts that you need to understand to understand everything about the theory of relativity, covariance and invariance. So we're looking at each other right now. Yes. So if I held up a pen and I held it in one hand, I could ask, well, is the pen to the left or right of the hand that doesn't have the pen? You might say to the left, I would say to the right, since we're looking at each other. Well, which one of us is right? We seem to be disagreeing. Well, neither of us is wrong. It is to your right, but to my left. So the notion of to the left of or to the right of is what we call a covariant property. That is, it varies with your perspective. Once you nail down a perspective, there's a truth of the matter. If you were to say to the right and it was to the left, you'd be wrong. Right? But if you adopt a different perspective, say where I'm sitting, then to the left of differs. Now, invariant is something like in between. So if I hold the pen in between my hands. Now, no matter where you're sitting, it is a fact of the world that the pen is in between the hands. So we have these two concepts, covariant and invariant. Okay. Now, what happened in the move from Einstein 
to Einstein from Newton was we took certain things that we thought were invariant. Now, invariant facts are special. If something doesn't change, no matter what your perspective, we think, okay, that's got to be true of the world itself. Newton thought that there were things that were true of the world itself, facts about space, facts about time. What we see with Einstein is that those things that Newton thought were true of the universe itself turns out just to be truths about one's perspective, how one sees things through that perspective. And what Einstein's theory does is connect your perspective to my perspective, to someone who's flying by at half you know, the speed of light, and says, here's how you would see it, how I would see it, and how the person traveling very fast would see it. Fascinating. You did it. I, to- I completely <laughs> get it. <laughs> I do, I think. Um, quiz me later. Uh, Einstein has a very indelible image. I mean, of course, there's that wild shock of hair, and we know that he won a Nobel. Uh, less well-known are details of his background. Tell us a little bit about where he came from, his family, his upbringing, and so on. Well, he grew up in southern Germany. He you know, was born actually just seven years after Germany became a country. Now, he grew up in the southern part which was a little bit more laid back. It was a more Catholic area. Prussia really was the power center. But countries are kind of like love affairs, right? When they're young, there's a lot of fire and passion. And Einstein grew up at a time when there really was a huge wave of nationalism. And as a young boy, he would see military parades through the streets. And he just always felt himself alienated from that sort of culture. You know, it's, it's a sort of a fundamental part of his personality that he struggled against authority. If you had power, his thumb was going for your eye. He just – he had a, an instant deep dislike of uh, a sense of control, especially if it was institutionalized, whether it was the schools, the military, his parents. So he was always sort of struggling against this sense of control and he grew up in a culture that relished control. Now, he grew up in a secular Jewish household, a very secular household, a household so secular that his parents sent him to Catholic school, where he was the only Jewish kid. Now, you know how kids are. If they find a difference, they will tease you. And he was teased. In some accounts, there was physical bullying. In other accounts, it was just making fun of him. But it was always made clear that he was the Jewish kid. Now, at home... Right? It's a very secular household. His father you know, is not only non-religious, is in a certain sense is very anti-religious, which was you know, fairly standard for a, a Jewish household at that time. And so here's Einstein who sees at home a sort of antipathy towards Judaism, but at school he's the Jewish kid. And so if he's going to rebel, he's going to you know, kill two birds with one stone. And for a little while he becomes extremely religious. He becomes – he keeps kosher in a house where they're serving sausages most meals. He makes up little psalms to God that he sings to himself on the way to school. And then he turns 10. (laughs) And what happens at 10? Well, at 10, he gets introduced to mathematics and science. Now, it was a a standard practice at the time that families would have a student over for a meal once a week – and for the Einsteins, it was Max Talmud, who was a medical student. And, you know, if you're a struggling college student, you don't have much money, but you want to get in good with the family, what do you do? You make nice to the kid. Now, there were a bunch of cheap paperback popular science books that were all the rage in Germany at the time. So he would bring young Albert 
these math and science books, and he would read them voraciously, and the two of them would talk about science, and it just really lit a fire under him. At the same time, his uncle lived with the family, his uncle Jacob, his father's brother, who was an electrical engineer, who taught him all about mathematics, and all of a sudden, he saw the world differently, right? So with mathematics, he fell in love with geometry, right? Think back to high school, right? Geometry is all about proofs. So you start from Euclidean axioms, propositions that have to be true, right? If you have two points, you get a line. Three points that aren't on the same line, you get a plane, right? Around any point, you can draw a circle as big as you want. These are just truths that have to be true. And then from that, you deductively derive all of these other strange you know, theorems, and they have to be true. If those initial truths are true and who could deny that? Then the rest has to be true. So Einstein gets from this a sense that the world can be understood. Things can be proven. The human mind can comprehend reality. Pair that with his sense of you know, problems with authority. And what you get is this sense that from authority, you get dogma, which can't be true. The open human mind, which is open through math and science, that's the real path to knowledge and understanding of what's happening. And so at age 10, he radically rejects any sense of religion and becomes sort of hyper-secularized, right? The idea is that everything in the world is to be understood through science. And so he rejects you know, what he had previously clung to, which was any sense of Jewish identity. Once Einstein embraced this scientific path that he was on, it was hard for him to get an academic job. And he worked, in fact, as a patent clerk in Bern in Switzerland. He was, in fact, doing that work. He was a patent clerk in 1905, which is considered really the pivotal year for him. Why? What was so important about that year? Well, it's a fascinating story. So he's in college. And the problem is in college – there are authorities. They're called your professors. <laughs> and Einstein was the sort where if his professors said to do A, he was going to do B. And he was going to make it very clear that he was doing B. The problem is when you finish college, you have to get a job. And he applied to literally every single physicist in all of Europe. No one would take him on as an assistant because his references were so horrible. His professor said, you know, do not take this kid, Einstein. He is not going to do what you need him to do. You know, he, he's not a team player. And so he was completely shut out of the academic world. Now, he had a friend, a man named Marcel Grossmann, who fortunately had a father who was connected with the Swiss uh, civil service who got him this wonderful job in the patent office. Now, Einstein's problems with authority also held true in terms of scientific authority. He was going to question things other people would never question. He had a view in his head about how he thought the universe was, and it contrasted with the views of the time. He needed to work it out. And at this time, he's working at the patent office. He has a nine-to-five job. But he has this other thing in his head. He has this, this worldview that he's trying to create a coherent theory of, which not only included relativity, but also included a new theory of light, a new theory of matter. So what Einstein would do is he would get into work. He would do a full day's work in the morning, work really hard. And then in the afternoons, he would work on his physics. He then would work in the evenings. Now, his home life in 1905 was not a happy one. He had a very dysfunctional marriage and a newborn child. 
not exactly a, a relaxing environment conducive to deep thought. But Einstein was reputed to have these incredible powers of concentration. So he would take his son, rock him on his shoulder with one arm, writing down physics with the other. And in that year, he wrote five papers. The first was his doctoral dissertation, which was on the theory of mixing, which is actually the most practical. It's actually still work that we use in, say, mixing cement or figuring out, you know, if you, you know, get, say, a pint of Ben and Jerry's right? <laughs> and you cut into it, right? You know, the, the goodies are all mixed in throughout yeah. the ice cream. How do you do that? Well, that's actually Einstein's dissertation that told us the mathematics of mixing. He had an ulterior motive, though. He wanted to prove the existence of atoms. Now, at the time, the scientific world was divided. Physicists loved the idea of atoms because they matched up with an intuitive notion that of the point mass that goes back to Newton. That is, we could think of all masses as concentrated as a little point, and we could think of things as tiny little ping pong balls bouncing around, and then we just need the equations. Chemists, on the other hand, hated the idea of atoms because they were invisible, right? Chemistry comes from alchemy, so there's always in sort of the, the back of their mind the fear that they're going to be thought of as not serious scientists. And so the idea that all of chemistry was you know, based on these invisible little things that somehow interact seemed like pseudoscience to them. So the chemists at the time hated the idea of atoms. So what Einstein does in his first two papers is change our theory of matter, right? So the idea is, you know, if you think of a thing, you think, well, look, I can cut it in half and cut that in half and cut that in half and in half and in half, and I should be able to go forever. It was Einstein who showed, no, it's going to come down to a certain particle that's going to be fundamental. So he has this picture of atoms. So the first thing he does in 1905 is change our picture of matter. Mm -hmm. The second thing he does is change our picture of light. Right? Now, the idea was that we had thought that light was a wave because there are certain behaviors that are only explainable in terms of the mathematics of waves. So if you think about waves at the ocean, right, the waves come in, the waves go out, and every once in a while, you know, the outgoing wave and the incoming wave collide. Now, at the high points, they get twice as high. The low points, they get twice as low. If one is high, one is low, they cancel out. We see that same sort of behavior with light. And through the 19th century, we thought, okay, light must be a wave. Well, Einstein thinks, no, I think just like matter is made up of atoms, maybe light is made up of particles. Mm -hmm. And he solves a couple of stubborn problems that no one had been able to figure out by thinking of light not as a wave, but as a particle. And when you think of it in that way, all of a sudden these problems that had been around for you know, 50 to 100 years that no one could figure out all of a sudden just vanish. Hmm. So we have a new picture of matter. We have a new picture of light. Seems like a good year. <laughs> then comes the theory of relativity, which are his last two papers, which completely change our pictures of motion and mass and energy. So in 1905, he comes out with these five papers that completely paint an entirely novel picture of the way the universe itself works, overthrowing all of science. Now, there are times where science is just ripe for a revolution, where you know, there are problems and everybody's panicked because nothing's working anymore. This wasn't the case in 1905. Things seemed settled. We had two great theories. We had one from Isaac Newton. We had one from James Clark Maxwell. There were a couple of places where it didn't work, but somebody clever would figure that out. No one thought a revolution was coming. 
But here was Einstein with a completely different picture who in 1905, not even working as a scientist, completely overthrows our picture of reality. Well, it makes you not want to go and get a PhD at all. Just go work <laughs> in an office somewhere and let the genius flow. Um, so you'd think given all those papers in that amazing year, he would just kind of like skyrocket to, you know, to fame, to that's it. He can just cash it in. But that's not exactly what happened. Why did it not happen like that for him right then and there? Because he was a patent clerk. He was a nobody. <laughs> but why was he not suddenly celebrated and grabbed by every major institution? Well, scientists, like everyone else, are inherently conservative. Here is this nobody. Can't even get a job as a real scientist who has this new theory which is going to give you a completely different picture of the universe. Who are you? Why would anybody buy it? Right? The physics was working fine. And so Einstein, who thought this was going to, to make him famous, it for a long time left the, the scientific world cold, except for a couple of people, one of whom was a man named Max Planck, who was the most powerful physicist at the time. He read it and was fascinated by it. And it was Planck who came to take the theory seriously. And people thought, well, wait a minute. If this guy is taking it seriously, maybe there's something here. And so slowly he started to get inquiries. Slowly he started corresponding with other important physicists. And after a while, he got a, a bottom rung job and slowly worked his way up. So in 1914, he moved to Germany for a position in Berlin. And I should clarify that he moved back to Germany. As you mentioned earlier, he had been born there. In 1896, though, he had renounced his citizenship, his German citizenship, so that he didn't have to go into the army. Later, he wrote, I discovered for the first time that I was a Jew, and I owe this discovery more to Gentiles than Jews. What exactly did he mean, and how did this discovery of him being Jewish play out in his life? Well, he leaves Germany when he's in high school. His father and his uncle had an electronics factory that was basically run out of business by Siemens. But they thought, well, we're in the right business. We're just in the wrong place. So they moved from Italy. They packed up the factory, moved it to Italy. They left Einstein there to finish high school, go to college, become an electrical engineer, live a good middle-class life. But he hated the schools. His family was gone. All he was left with was the schools. So he ended up you know, getting a, a doctor's note saying, please excuse Albert from the rest of high school. He's suffering from nervous exhaustion, makes his way to Italy and swears he is never going back to Germany. He ultimately finishes high school and then goes to university in Switzerland, where his heart is really claimed. The neutrality, the openness really was the way he wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Now, he had a job in Switzerland. Then he got a better position in Prague. He moved back to Switzerland because his wife loved Switzerland so much. And then he got the offer. Max Planck, who we were just speaking of, decided he wanted around the University of Berlin to put together the greatest physics department in the world. And he was bringing in the greatest minds from everywhere, and he wanted Einstein. So he went to Einstein with an offer. We will give you an institute which you can staff and run with a very large budget. We will pay you handsomely, and all you need to do is come to Berlin and be Einstein. It's plum. 
it was a dream. Now, at this point, he was working on his general theory of relativity, right? The theory from 1905 is the special theory of relativity. Now, we, you know, in common parlance, we think, well, would you rather be general or special? Oh, special. <laughs> you know, everybody's mom thinks they're special. In science, it's the other way around. In science, when we say special, we mean a special case. It means it's limited. General means it applies to everything, and that's what we want. Einstein was trying to generalize his theory of relativity, which turned out to be extremely difficult. And here was an opportunity for him to basically do nothing but this work, be well-supported, and be around people he admired and liked very much. So he couldn't turn the job down. Now his wife despised Germany. He moves back in 1914 in order to take this plum job, but things just start getting worse for him personally and politically. At this time, you know, the, the First World War is, is, is right there right. and you have that nationalism. All of a sudden, he remembers why he left Germany. Well, what was his experience while he was in Germany after 1914? Did he encounter a lot of anti-Semitism? He did. He experienced a huge wave of nationalism at a time when he was a pacifist and spoke out openly. And this was a time you know, when wars first start, right? It's, it's not only patriotism, it's enforced patriotism. And here's somebody undermining that and someone who's Jewish. And so his outsider uh, status, especially as a Jew, led to the rekindling of that old anti-Semitism that he experienced as a child. But it didn't bring him back particularly to a faith community. Not at the time. So when he says it was the Gentiles who taught me what it is to be a Jew, right? In the Jewish community, in any community, he always would sort of find himself an outsider. He considered himself, you know, a lone horse was Einspanners, the German term he would use. So in the community, he was always trying to get out. But in the broader community, it was only in the broader community that he realized he didn't belong there. Let's talk for a moment about Palestine. Einstein himself uh, had gone in 1922. That was his first visit to what would become Israel. What were his initial impressions? That was his only visit. Uh, he was actually on a trip to Japan where he was going to give a series of lectures and he was going through the Suez Canal and he thought, well, I'm in the neighborhood. <laughs> I might as well. And he went. Uh, the Hebrew University was a passion of his. He had, you know, a non-standard Zionist perspective. He thought, you know, what we now would call the one-state picture. He did not think that there ought to be a Jewish homeland there, but that there ought to be a safe haven for Jews in Palestine. And when he got there, he was not terribly impressed by Jerusalem. He thought, this is just the old world. These are people living in the past. But then he got to Tel Aviv. And here he was just amazed. Here was a modern city that was just grown out of the desert. And he thought, this is it. This is what his picture of Judaism was really all about. It was about modernity. It was about science. It was about technology. It was about creating a new world that created a better life. And here were people living a modern 
Western life in the middle of the desert where they literally planted and grew a city. And he thought it was just the most wonderful thing he had ever seen. Uh, Let's get back for a moment, though, to his point of view about um, a Jewish safe haven. He wrote extensively about it, and he was quite critical of some of the tactics of the early founders of the modern state of Israel, of Begin and Ben-Gurion. Yes. what was his uh, – what did he foresee for the homeland? I mean how could uh, there be coexistence? What did he say? Well, for him, nationalism was inherently problematic. When he looked at Judaism, for him, the picture of Judaism was really informed by being an outsider, that there was – you know, Martin Buber's picture of I and thou was very attractive to him in a secularized version. He and Buber were, were dear friends and shared a, a picture of Zionism in that way. And for him, the Jewish ethos was in seeing the humanity in the other. That is, what made one a Jew is always being the outsider. And in being the outsider, you could always empathize because everyone in a certain sense is an outsider. His fear was that Zionism interpreted as Jewish nationalism would poison Judaism, that Zionism, once it became attached to land, land would become an idol, and then it would corrupt this ethos, which he thought was a beautiful morality. For him, he realized coming out of Europe at the time, and he saw what was happening in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in the Ukraine. He saw what was happening in France. He thought Jews need a safe place. But that safe place doesn't mean nationalism. It just needs a place where they can go and be who they are. Now, Hebrew University, he thought, would be a beacon for Jews everywhere because he thought – what would happen is you would have now a place where Jewish intellectuals could gather, could create new theories, new technologies. And Jews, he thought, suffered from an affliction of the soul. He thought, and he, he saw this in his German Jewish friends, that like Haber, they bought into this picture of the great German and they saw themselves as second-class citizens. And his hope was that by having not necessarily a Jewish homeland, but a safe haven with this intellectual home of Hebrew University, that it would create a sense of pride that Jews worldwide would see that they're not second-class citizens, that they could simply be who they are and be proud of their Judaism. Was there anything about writing about Einstein this time around that uh, took you by surprise? Oh, that's a good question. Now, in the first book, I really looked primarily at the scientific theories and the way they came out of the times. In this case, when you look at his life itself, what's really interesting is the way that his picture of religion is formulated in a way that really responds to the events on the ground. So for Einstein, for years, you know, into early adulthood, he, he deeply rejected this sense of Jewish identity. It comes back in two waves. The first wave is the one we referred to earlier where he saw anti-Semitism as responsible for his self-definition. That is, he was being labeled a Jew by those who wanted to denigrate Jews. And as an outsider, he then latched on to this idea. But the problem was that if I allow 
those who hate me to define me. They give me, they take away from me the power of self-definition. I want that power back. He then travels to America. And it's in America, meeting American Jews, that he says he first really understood what it was to be Jewish. Because it was in American Jews that he saw none of the sort of self-deprecation that he saw in European Jews. American Jews didn't think of themselves as second-class citizens. They were quite proud to be both American and to be Jewish and hold both on equal footing. And it was in American Jews that he saw a way of being that allowed self-definition and that he would then take back with him to Europe and then start to think about deeply. And it was really through this image of American Judaism that he began to shape that image in himself. Stephen Gimbel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Stephen Gimbel is a professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. He's the author of several books. The newest one is Einstein, His Space and Times. It's out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored our conversation today. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us, and please join us again. Thank you.